Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. A little bit of Humphrey Littleton to set us in the mood. For my special guest this week has been a big jazz fan since boyhood. He's a watercolour artist and a lifelong photographer who's held multiple exhibitions here over the decades. He's a friend of designer Henry Steiner. He says where everything should start is with a pencil and drawing. Norman de Bracking chatted with me at his studio in Causeway Bay about how art surrounded him in his family growing up, how he worked with publishers Penguin and Hamlin, the latter bringing him to Hong Kong in 1976 to improve the quality of printed books here. We'll also throw in some jazz and a haiku or two. Don't use the handrail. Red ants on the march will bite. Believe me, it hurts. I better say something about my family because I am what I am. It's their fault, put it that way. My father was a photo engraver, very, very good at colour separation. In fact, one of his jobs was going to art galleries with a, a bromide print and copying the colours of an original so that he could get a good reproduction from that. My grandfather was a wet plate camera operator in the same sort of business. And my... Give me a little bit more on that. Uh, Well, my grandfather, in fact, when my grandfather retired, he had enough potassium cyanide in his body to sort of probably dismiss everybody in the company because he had his hands in potassium cyanide every day for nearly 50 years. And the doctor said, if you take a little drop of cyanide, it'll probably just act as a mild sedative, so don't worry about it. Uh, My father's brother was an antiquarian bookseller, so I've always been surrounded by books and images. And there is rumours that somewhere in the family there was a typesetter. My father, though, painted watercolours, very tight watercolours, mostly of birds, and he played rugby and did ice skating, so... I didn't do any of those things. But from a child, I had a crystal set, like everybody, and my father built me a pinhole camera when I was was a toddler. I remember doing that in physics. (laughs) It was quite fun. I mean, so I grew up with lots of books, music, because my father was a very good violin player. He was actually first violin in a semi-professional orchestra. And where was this? Where are you growing up in? In, in Hertfordshire. In Hertfordshire, in, okay. in, in East Barnet. So, the, so north of London? Yes, north of London. And, and uh, it's at East Barnet, so are you in a sort of semi-rural area? Yeah, well, it's Hertfordshire, yeah. I mean, the cows used to look over the garden fence until there was an estate built. I was involved in imagery from, from when I was, was very young. So you are born in 1935? Oh, 1934, the same year as Henry Steiner. He's a little bit older than me. We're both in the Chinese thing, we're both dogs. I went to the School of Photo Engraving and Lithography, which was... In London? In London, which was just off Fleet Street. 
So I travelled on on the tube from Cockfosters, which was where we lived, to Fleet Street every day. So, so you'd had this family around you, so you've already got this environment of yeah. photo engraving, mm-hmm. of wet plates, so, yeah. you know, you're, you're <laughs> inhaling it virtually. Um, well, not quite the cyanide. So in terms of art at home were you you know growing up at school are you already inspired by art oh yes of course i used to i lived with a pencil or a pen in fact photography which i i did like later serious photography but i thought with a pencil and one sort of funny recent story a, a big graphic arts thing here in hong kong Everybody was talking about their latest software and stuff like that. And they said to me, what do you use? Well, I don't use anything, really. But I said, I use pad. Somebody said, that's very new. What's that? I said, it's pencil-aided design. And in that respect, I'm Henry Steiner and I are similar. We think with a pencil. We draw ideas. And I still do that. I think in that sort of imagery. Do you think all people should start with a pencil? Of course, of course. A drawing is actually very important. And in fact, these things that I do, I mean, that's a sketch there that I did on the spot, looking across the llama. That's what I did from it later on. So, and that, people think that those, I've done maybe 50 or 60 of them, they think that those are wood blocks, but they're not. <laughs> they're, they're, they're but they, yes, they do. They do like yeah. wood blocks. Um, That's a, that would have been my well, guess too. I had, I did have scholarships to the Royal College of Art and the Slade School of Art, but the family decided that I should be a lithographer, and they were probably quite right at that time, just after the the Second World War. So I I became a lithographer. And what did that involve? I went to work for a company, I was an apprentice lithographer, and I've actually drawn on stone. I worked then on posters, sometimes as, in as many as 15 colours, all hand-drawn. And so I got a good natural inclination for it. It was there from, from the family, I, I was surrounded by it. Can I ask, uh, generally, who are the artists who you would say that, you know, as in your, when you were developing as an artist, who were influential? And I don't mean that you necessarily look to imitate their art, I just mean that, that you admired them for certain reasons. Uh, that is quite a difficult question to answer in many ways, because if you're surrounded by art, there are certain things that you, you look at and you understand. And I suppose William Turner was the first influence on me because he was an influence on my father. And uh, my father colour-corrected many uh, sort of reproductions of Turner paintings. So I knew them and I understood the certain abstraction of of some of uh, Turner's work. The other person uh, going back in those, those sort of times was Constable. And Constable painted clouds like nobody else could ever do it. And they were abstract. And he saw things that minutized sometimes that were so real. And I liked those things. But I was excited by modern painting. I was excited by the work of of Rothko. And particularly Nicholas de Staal. 
the sad thing about that is that both Roscoe and uh, Nicholas Listar committed suicide. And that was, I think, because they had just painted themselves out. They just uh, obliterated the canvas. But the little distal watercolours are incredible. And compared to the big, thick paintings that one can see in, in the, the Tate Gallery, there's this huge contrast. And the, with Rothko, sitting in the Rothko room at, at the Tate Gallery, you, you sort of absorb the meditative sort of aspect of, of Rothko with his paintings and in a sense that's what what i like he says he likes to see his paintings together to give a voice because they're a bit like a choir and that's the same thing here yes you've got a number of voices you've got sopranos so, all along your wall here <laughs> you've got every you've got the whole gamut of so sopranos and baritones yeah, yeah. there is a sort of a musical strain running through sort of what I do because I, I, I love jazz and, and, and Carla Blay, who, uh, a pianist who is now in her, in her mid-80s and her last album was rather wonderful just after brain surgery as well but um, she was asked why as a composer do you like to use jazz musicians and she paused for a moment and she said well the reason is that if the music falls off the stand, they carry on. To me, that essence is there's something about any painting which is improvised. And, and you look at some of my drawings, like this one and this one here, they are factual, but they're not. They are improvised. <laughs> So what does a lithographer do? The company produced posters, usually large posters for rail railways, travel posters, all sorts of things like that. And you would draw on zinc plates, you would draw by hand various colours. Being a lowly apprentice, I just did light greys and pale blues in case anything went wrong. <laughs> but um, so and that built up your automatic appreciation of how colours went together or, or didn't go together. So that was the early sort of stage of my life. And what was the company called? The company was called Charles and Reed. So you were living at home at this point? Of course. I used to cycle from home to work. With, what sort of bike? With the sandwiches that my, my <laughs> mother had made for me. I used to do cycle racing at that time as well. So did you have drop handlebars? Or? Uh, yes, all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> but life gets interrupted. Mine was interrupted by national service. Yes. And that was potentially interesting in that they had decided, because of the Korean War, they would have a mobile newspaper for the troops. And there were four of us and a, a big van and we were going to go around and produce the newspaper for the lads that were doing the, the fighting. But fortunately, the war ended. The idea was scrapped and I went to Singapore. Yes, I was going to say, because for others who... Uh, obviously, it's an idea that now no longer exists, but uh, in your era, in my father's era, you were required to do two years yeah, yes, national, service. national service. You had a choice of going, doing your national service when you were 18 
or being deferred until you were 21. I decided to get it over with and I don't have any regrets about my national service because I went from not going to Korea to Singapore, which mm. I felt I was lucky enough there. That's a reprieve. Yeah, Singapore was, I was immediately able to accommodate myself in Singapore. And I went to a printing unit there, which was army. And because I'd already signed the Official Secrets Act, so I then went to work through that to security and intelligence Far East. This was 53. Eventually, in terms of working, I was working actually at Penguin Books, which was a wonderful experience. So, Alan, so this is after your national service? Yes, well, after my apprenticeship and everything like that. At Penguin, Sir Alan Lane was a wonderful person because I used to do painting and drawing and all and, and that sort of thing. And, and I was worked, this for children's books? Oh, no, there I worked with... There were all sorts of uh, interesting people there, Germano Fassetti, the designer. But Alan Lane, he said to me on one occasion... You know, the difference between a designer and an artist is the fact that the, the designer has a client. The artist works for himself and hopes to get a client. And that's always stayed with me. When the Suez crisis happened, I was called up for that as a reservist. And then I went to Cyprus to work for a small thing that was called Psychological Warfare Unit. The problem in Cyprus was the fact that there was EOCA, sort of terrorist organisation, basically Greek-orientated. And the idea was that we didn't know with Suez whether we were going to producing leaflets to drop on Egypt or Israel at the time because of various things. And we had Ronald Searle, the, the artist, with us drawing. He eventually was drawing anti-NASA cartoons. But the idea was that we had to produce a oh, million... So, oh, so just to take a moment, so Ronald Searle obviously goes on to be a phenomenal sort of illustrator <laughs> of, of <laughs> very famous uh, and cartoonist. I mean, he, he did wonderful anti-NASA cartoons. Yeah, so, of course, President NASA of yeah, Egypt, yeah, yes. Yeah, and we, so it, it was quite fun to be with him. This is during the Suez Crisis, uh, so the Suez Canal, in 1956. Yeah. So I was involved in that sort of thing and it was an experience that I suppose stimulated the idea of looking at things. I mean, there, there was a lot of controversy about the whole thing. What was it sort of like? Did he make NASA look a bit grotesque or with his moustache? Or... The, one of the, those cartoons, which I can remember quite vividly, has a picture of a rather sad-looking... Uh, Egyptian looking up at the sky and there's aircraft filling the rest of the cartoon and the caption is I thought Egypt's air force ruled the sky mm. that was it <laughs> and, and the idea a, a million of those were printed and dropped within 24 hours the other cartoon that caused a great deal of problems for us was a David Lowe cartoon 
of the Russian leaders with uh, their hands dripping in blood. So this was Khrushchev at the time? Khrushchev and Bulganin, I think. And they were saying, they, they, their hands dripping in blood, and they were saying, the caption was, shall we go and wash our hands in the Suez Canal? Because the Russians had, at that time, just invaded Hungary. So that was a very potent thing. The air officer commanding the Middle East said, I can't drop that. I can't possibly drop that. You've got to destroy it. We couldn't put it into the sea. You couldn't dump it because it might wash up somewhere. So we ended up burning all those uh, leaflets. And, and I'm in the middle of all this, and I'm quite young. I'm still only 23 or 22. And uh, so you're living in a sort of slightly wild world. We had this little printing sort of unit surrounded by barbed wire. I was in charge of that until an officer turned up. It was my second night in that unit. I was in charge of the guard. And somebody came rushing in saying, there's somebody trying to get in through the wire. So I thought, OK, I'll come and see. So I put one guy behind some trees, another guy behind a rock, and I walked down to the wire and I challenged that noise. Eventually, after the third challenge, I fired two shots and it went silent. The following morning, there was a Greek shepherd knocking on the door because I'd killed one of his sheep. Rather nerve-wracking. Very, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, I picked up two books to make sure I got something to read. I took Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and the latest Penguin book of English verse. And those two books are still lurking around somewhere on my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow pages falling out. After Penguins, I was working for the Hamlin Group. So another publisher? Yes, the big publishers. And my function there was not dissimilar to my father's function. I had the, the strange title. I was called Technical Advisor. But my job was... To, my function was to work with designers, production people, editors and authors to deal with photography, to try and get the best result on paper. So that was one aspect of, of my, my work. The other one was to go and see work printed on press. So I was always travelling because we, we printed work in Holland, France, Germany, Spain and Italy, and then Prague in Czechoslovakia because Paul Hamlin had very close relationship with, with the Czechs because we at Hamlin's, we took a lot of their children's books and they vice versa. So I used to go to Prague probably every two months. So when's this? This is, well, I, I can't put an exact date on it, but I can tell you one, one thing. I used to, my visits to Prague were I shared. I, there was a, a, an editor, Donald Porter, who... Because this would have been communist, Prague. Yes, yes. And he said to me, look, I know you're going to Prague this coming time. Can we swap? Can I go? When Donald went there, the Russians invaded mm. Czechoslovakia. And he was stuck in the Alcron Hotel for probably two weeks or more. Mm. And we used to get all the information about what was going on via telex. 
So I was very lucky that I didn't go... I mean, but the Czechs had a great sense of humour. Under Wenceslas Square, there were a lot of shops. And there were escalators that took you down into that shopping arcade. And so in a shopping arcade, so we're in the middle of Prague at this point. Yeah, yeah. and uh, there was always one of those escalators not working. Yes. But for the locals, it was always the Russian one. <laughs> the luggage that I used to take quite often there would be spark plugs there would be stockings there would be all sorts of things that people at Artia needed so was that Norman's side hustle? <laughs> yes, and Donald and I used to say what are you taking this time Donald? <laughs> Let's talk about Verona. Well, I, I used to go to Verona possibly every six weeks or so to check because we did a lot of... Hamlin's did a lot of printing there. Verona was a lovely town and because it, it had Shakespearean connotations and there was in the arena, which was where, you know, all the, the fighting took place, it was now for the opera. And... The opera in Verona was a wonderful experience. It would go on from about seven o'clock in the evening until the early hours. And the audience would get encores during the performance. They would, And I went to a couple of operas there, but they were, went on for far too long for me. But there was that sort of feeling. Everybody in Verona seemed to like the opera, seemed to want to remember history and they wanted to keep the place like it was. They didn't mind tourists, but they didn't like loud ones. It's, it's an interesting... And I enjoyed it because of that. And, and because I went there often, and it, it, when it came to the point of time when I actually had to choose between whether I... If I was going to leave the Hamlin Group, was I going to come to Hong Kong because I'd been offered a job here through Paul Hamlin or would I go to live in Verona and take over from the retiring quality control man at Mondadori? And it was a toss of a coin really, but I think I made the right decision. I came here. <laughs> I came here and I was enthralled in a sense by the place. And I was living when I was first here in the Lee Gardens Hotel and on the, my second day here I was already driving it was just after Chinese New Year and I, I, I was asked oh can you go over to a printer somewhere it was fascinating because even a lot of the printing companies were in Kowloon or Lychee Cork or somewhere and driving there was really a little bit it was haphazard I would say do you remember what sort of car it was I, I had a Toyota whatever it was if I was lost over there the landmark was in central you know there it was with all its lovely holes and things like oh, that Jardine House yeah Jardine House now of course yeah. I, if I aimed for that I would eventually find a sign for the tunnel so <laughs> I was okay I was involved in checking colour reproduction, working with colour separators and also working with printers and, and teaching them and letting them know that if I was, had to see something on press and they would always say, they would never tell me it was going to be in the middle of the night, the next sheet or whatever. 
But eventually I said to them, look, if it's on at 11 o'clock, I'll come in. So they would phone me and I'd get in the car and I'd drive and I'd go there at that time. And it is the day... I mean, technology has overtaken all of that because then artists, designers, photographers would come to Hong Kong to see their work printed. They would be the ones who would sign off on the sheet. Throughout your life, with your art, is there a certain discipline... Is there a certain uh, methodology? Like when you say, oh, I'm going to go out and or I'm going to go to Cape Dagula? No, I, I, I think that sometimes if one goes out deliberately armed with a sketchbook and camera, that you, you don't see things. The, I, the ideal circumstances is to always have them in case of. Uh, and then you'll stop and do something, like getting off the minibus and running back to take a photograph of something. But sometimes going out and planning things doesn't work. I know the painters in, in France and Europe went out into the fields and they, they sat there and they painted and their, their images. Yes, I've done that, but I preferred, in the end, to do smaller sketches, but which were personal and then do the painting in the studio. It's from those that my paintings develop. And there's, you can see, for example, just up here, that's a sketch I did sitting in the park at Cyberport, and that's what I've done from it. Um, that woodblock effect. And, and <laughs> that, is, that took maybe 15, 20 minutes. That took all day. Yes. <laughs> So there's a, there's a difference between the two. Is poetry something that you've always had since boyhood? I love poetry, um, and I'm one of the few people that buy it. Um, <laughs> and, and one of the few... I go to Westlight frequently because they sell poetry, and I, I rummage and I find all sorts of interesting things. Um, I like it because of the rhythm of it, and it reminds me of music. With haikus, I, I like Japanese literature. When I was doing a lot of travelling, particularly it started when I was at Hamlin's, and I was always somewhere else. I was always in France or Germany, Italy, Spain, on press with people sometimes. And I didn't keep a diary. Quite often, uh, something would happen, and the haiku was almost an expression of something different. So that... The, the discipline of, of, of having to write within certain limits and be concise and make sense of it, to make each line mean something and yet the whole thing to mean something else, perhaps. And so I started to write them. And, and so I've been doing that for a long, long time. Tiny black ants race over the white tablecloth. Where have they gone now? Sharp tasting pickles over freshly cooked rice stimulate the tongue. Waiting for the bus, umbrellas against the sun, blooming like flowers. One thing that the, 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 the latest Penguin book of haiku is absolutely wonderful because that takes the haiku out of the sort of normal context of nature and it, some of it is quite gritty and, uh, and raunchy and, and you realise that the haiku was a vehicle for expressing 
all sorts of things. And in that respect, it's like jazz. My thanks to Norman de Bracking there. Oh, and here's one more haiku, just to finish off. A nice, simple lunch can take a long time to prepare, so eat it slowly. Norman de Bracking, I enjoyed our chat. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Mm-hmm.